and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 226th episode, our guest is Jeff Gwynn. Jeff Gwynn is the best-selling author of numerous books, including Go Down Together, The Last Gunfight, Manson, The Road to Jonestown, War on the Border, and Waco. He lives in Fort Worth, Texas, and is a member of the Texas Literary Hall of Fame. A quick programming note. During the episode, I mentioned my interview with Jonestown survivor Eugene Smith, which was episode 199 of the podcast. I will include a link to this episode and my Ukiah Daily Journal story about fellow Jonestown survivor Tracy Diaz in the show notes. And now on to the show. Thank you so much for your patience. I appreciate it. No, that's fine. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just a... lucky if I can get the Zoom link to work. <laughs> See, I'm a millennial. I should be the one that's all technically savvy, but I'm falling over myself here. But <laughs> anyway. I just think you're uh, keeping up a grand tradition from us old guys. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I can keep that up. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this tonight. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I'm a huge fan of your work, and I've been looking forward well, to you. doing this for quite a while, so this is great. Yeah, uh, I've only finished uh, two and a half of your books, so I apologize because I know you've written, you've written so many, uh, and so I, uh, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I don't want to insult you by not having caught up on the entire twenty-five here. So, <laughs> take your time. Take your time. Understood. Understood. Um, it says you have to give me permission to record on the computer. I don't know if there's some button you have to push. Well, I'm looking and I don't see any. Um, it's under... I, I will verbally give you my permission to record. <laughs> but yes, I, uh, I see. I first uh, became interested in your work uh, because you uh, wrote The Road to Jonestown, which I thought was great. And um, it's, a sto- it's a story I've covered for many years, and I thought you laid it out all very well. Um, I have a lot of s- strange kind of personal connections to that story. Uh, my brother and I both, and my wife, all went to Indiana University, and my uh, brother Chris actually lived in Collins Living Learning Center his freshman year, which I was told was where Jim Jones lived when he was a student here. I'm not sure if that was his actual residence. but um, And then after college, I was hired as a reporter at the Ukiah Daily Journal in Ukiah, California. Okay, well. And you, you know all about that. So um, I, uh, I didn't understand the People's Connection, People's Temple Connection between Ukiah and Indiana until I got there, actually. I, I honestly had no idea. And then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in ground zero right here. <laughs> okay. You were. <laughs> and um, so on the 30th anniversary of Jonestown in 2008, I interviewed uh, Tracy Diaz, who was uh, formerly known as Tracy Parks, Um, and I also interviewed Rebecca Moore at that time because she had, uh, Tracy had traveled back to Jonestown for the 30th anniversary. Um, and then two years ago, I actually had a chance to interview, uh, Jonestown survivor, Eugene Smith. Uh, Eugene's a good friend of mine. Yeah. He's a great, great guy. And, uh, I hope I haven't talked to him since, uh, then, and I hope he's, hope he's doing well. Um, you know, he had a book published. Yes. That was why I interviewed him because I read it. Right. and then talk to them about it. So, yes, it was a great book. I enjoyed it very much. And I thought it was a good perspective uh, that really hadn't been seen before as well. Um, but anyway, I, that's all, the, all that to say is we, we could talk about Jonestown and the People's Temple for hours, I'm sure, but uh, definitely want to make sure we have time to talk about your latest book. So that's, that's definitely what, what I want to focus on here. But, sure. Um, 
I like how this Waco book starts with a his, an overview of the origins of the Seventh-day Adventist, because my wife, Ash, was a religious studies major at IU, and uh, I've heard about William Miller and the Great Disappointment before, but uh, could you just go ahead and give uh, a little bit of a background of the, the Millerites and the Great Disappointment, how that figures into this whole story here? Sure. In the 1800s, mostly in mid and northeast America, there was a belief that the end times were in fact imminent. And uh, there was a prophet slash farmer slash preacher who uh, even offered a date for that. Uh, His followers took his name, the Millerites. Uh, Things didn't happen when he'd predicted, but the theory was that his theology must have been right, even if his mathematics and calendar calculating were not. One of the offshoots was the Seventh-day Adventist faith. And two of the important precepts there are that God does sometimes send prophets in human form among us who can uh, take messages from the Lord and give fresh interpretations to everyone willing to listen And second, that the end of times, end days, forecast in the book of Revelation, was going to be coming. And it was necessary to hew closely to what the Bible expected of us if we were going to be among the ones saved. The Branch Davidians were an offshoot, really, of Seventh-day Adventists. In Los Angeles, uh, there was an interesting fellow who... uh, was a uh, washing machine salesman during the day, but in the evening he taught Seventh-day Adventist. uh, Victor Houdif was his name. He determined that the Adventists were not strict enough, were too worldly, and ultimately left with some of his followers buying cheap land in Waco, Texas, because they thought they'd need room for the 144,000 saved souls that uh, Revelation said would be spared the horrible end at the end times and eventually live in a thousand-year kingdom of God. So the Branch Davidians in Waco were actually an offshoot of over a century of religious faith. They were not some fly-by-night outfit, and for all that their interpretation of the Bible may not be acceptable to a lot of people or even reasonable, they devoutly believed that they knew what God required of us. Yeah, that leads exactly into what I was going to talk about with uh, that kind of schism that happened. Um, Now, an interesting other kind of forebear to all this, and uh, you talk about this in the book, uh, is uh, Cyrus Teed. Now, could you, I, 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 I didn't get the sense that we could ever prove whether or not David Koresh ever checked out this book from the library, but you were able, or somebody was able to locate this where in a, you know, in a time period when he could have seen this. Uh, sorry, explain who this person was and then maybe go from there, but yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Cyrus Teed is proof that you start researching a book and occasionally you find something so jaw-dropping that you have to start going in a completely different direction than you had expected. David Koresh gained ascendancy among the Branch Davidians by claiming that during a 1985 trip to Israel, 
He, then known as Vernon Wayne Howell, was raised up to heaven by angels and was informed there of three things. The first, that he was the new version of Old Testament King Cyrus. And in the Old Testament, Cyrus defeats uh, Babylon and rescues Israelites and helps rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Because of this, he's the only Gentile recognized as a Messiah in the Old Testament. Vernon Wayne Howell is told that since you are Cyrus, you must take his name, and in Hebrew, Cyrus is pronounced Koresh. Second, that the newly minted Koresh is the lamb in the book of Revelation. The lamb is the one who will open the seven seals of the great book, and as he opens each seal, something catastrophic will happen on earth until all seven are opened, and the lamb will and his followers will fight the agents of Babylon for ascendancy. The lamb and some of his followers must die, but will be translated by God, return, and finally defeat Babylon and help usher in the thousand-year kingdom of God on earth. The third thing that Koresh stressed was that Exactly as the angels predicted, he and his followers must fight Babylon, the United States government, and die so they can come back and fulfill their final destiny. All these things sound not only apocalyptic, but somewhat grand and unique. However, almost 100 years earlier, a New York City physician turned alchemist named Cyrus Teed had prophesied the exact same things. Moving to Florida with his followers, he took the same name Koresh because of the pronunciation, stated he was the lamb, swore that he would bring about with his followers the end times, word for word. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand how Vernon Wayne Howe, who read the Bible and nothing else, would ever have heard of Cyrus Teed, It turned out that there was a book of Teed's prophecies, a very rare book, in the Waco Public Library, and that Vernon Howell's mentor, the leader of the Branch Davidians prior to him, Lois Roden, also claimed some of the same prophecies that Cyrus Teed had made. And when you would compare Teed's writings, and there are writings of Teed's that are there to check, Word for word, they're what David Koresh prophesied. Whether consciously or not, David Koresh plagiarized the prophecies of Cyrus Teed. It's incontrovertible. The prophecies are exact. Yeah, and um, it is kind of amazing how many parallels there are. And um, at one point, they tried, didn't they try to get this book into, like, just skipping forward the story, but, like, during the siege, wasn't there a point at which they tried to get this book inside the compound? Well, you know, we can we could talk for a week or two <laughs> about the terrible errors in judgment made by the leaders of the FBI yeah. in the siege. And this was certainly one of them. Uh, during the 51-day siege, negotiators were talking constantly on the phone to either Koresh or Steve Schneider, who was sort of his number two. 
And at one point, apparently the FBI became aware of this book in the Waco Library called Koreshanity, A Religion for the New Age, and that there were so many parallels in it to what David Koresh was claiming he had heard first from God when Cyrus T. had said the same thing, and now here's this book to prove it. When the FBI mentioned the book, a negotiator mentioned the book to Steve Schneider on the phone line about 10 days before the siege ended, saying, we have this book that maybe you'd want to see. There's somebody else who called himself Koresh back in Florida decades ago, and it's something you need to know about. And you can hear on the negotiator tape and I urge any of your listeners who think maybe this is being made up by some writer to uh, check out the tapes themselves. You can get them through Freedom of Information Act. Steve Schneider yells, David, the FBI said there's a book about somebody else who called himself Koresh. And David Koresh yells back, hey, I'd like to see that. Tell him to send it in. Which leads me to believe Koresh the second, let's say, Vernon Wayne Howe, mm. had the prophecy explained to him by his mentor, Lois Roden, who we know had already been cribbing from Cyrus Teed. He had no idea that, that he was plagiarizing. At any rate, the FBI promised they would send the book in right away. But that same day, Jeff Jamar, the lead agent uh, during the siege, decreed that nothing else could be sent into the Mount Carmel building because he didn't think the Branch Davidians were being cooperative enough. For the next couple days, Koresh and Schneider both asked, can you send in this book? We want to read it. If the book had been sent in, because a lot of the Branch Davidians only followed Koresh because they believed he was an original prophet, might very well have said, wait a minute, there's something wrong here and would no longer have been willing to die at the hands of Babylon just because David Koresh was telling them to do it. But the FBI never sent the book in, and a few days later, they sent instead in canisters of CS gas, and we all know what happened then. Right, right. And yeah, you, you definitely hit it on the head there. We could definitely go on and on about all the failures of uh, the government beforehand, not arresting him out in the town when he was walking around or performing. Uh, the, some of this would be comedy if it wasn't tragedy. Just like the, the fake, the, you have one scene where they have a fake party uh, to, uh, posing as college students across the road, but like all the, all the Davidians know that they're feds and they're not like fooling anyone and you can't go into certain rooms and all these guys are like 10 years older than college students. <laughs> it's like not really very convincing to anyone. <laughs> So, you know, this was an extremely frustrating book in many ways to research mm. because there's so many moments when if either the ATF leadership, FBI leadership, or the Branch Davidians and Koresh himself had bothered trying to understand what the other side was all about and try to talk to each other as reasonable individuals – None of this had to happen, and that is the awful frustration here. It did because nobody involved thought what the other person believed was important at all. 
I think one of the important things that you focus on in this book is some of the disputed factors in this story and some of the conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists that uh, kind of uh, sprung forth uh, from this. Now, I, I, you talk about this in the book, and there's, there's two sides to this story. I was wondering if in your research you were able to come to any conclusions about, uh, let's, let's see, who fired first in your initial raid, if helicopters above fired at the roof on that first day, and who set the fire during the final assault, because that final one I had actually heard about, because there's a famous video clip that I'm sure you've, you've seen, and I think you describe in the book, too, of uh, the tank with the fire coming out of the end, and it looks like it's like shooting fire into mm-hmm. the building. Um, so you know what I mean? So could, could you talk sure. a little bit about those uh, incidents and what you found in your research? Certainly. Uh, the main conclusion you can draw after studying everything, and I was able to get a lot of documents from the FBI through Freedom of Information Act, and ATF agents who had never talked much before about the initial raid on February 28th, 93, uh, not only spoke with me openly about what happened, but they had certain internal documents from the ATF that they had saved all these years. So we have a pretty clear picture of some things. Of the three big disputed areas, the first is on February 28th, who fired first? Did ATF go in with gun blazing? Or did they go in expecting that they would simply be able to get inside the compound, take control, and arrest Koresh without a shot being fired? ATF agents, and I've talked to over 20, talked to them separately so they weren't all together. You know, just one would say something and everybody else would agree to it. Are unanimous that the first shots were fired from inside the compound? The Branch Davidians, the survivors, and there are a few who I talked to, all insist that the first shots came from ATF. I found three members of the media uh, who were from the Waco newspaper directly across the road from Mount Carmel when the fight began and who had no reason to be on one side or the other. All three of them were positive the first shots came out from inside the compound at the ATF agents. We'll never know for certain, and the ATF agents and the surviving Branch Davidians all absolutely insist that they're right and the other side is wrong. My suspicion, I do not write this in the book, though I make it, I make mention in the chapter notes, because the book itself, I think, is simply for what facts there are to talk about the different theories and let the readers decide. You have 76 trained professional agents on the ATF side, all of them either veteran police officers, veterans from military service, or the Border Patrol. They have all made dozens and dozens of of raids on armed suspects, and yet out of Over 600 previous raids by the ATF, there had only been two times that shots were fired at all. Then you have inside about 90 adult Branch Davidians who have been promised by David Koresh, this is the big fight. Finally, it's happening. We're all going to go to heaven and be translated. They have automatic weapons 
much more powerful than what ATF's carrying. Now, who is more likely to get nervous or overexcited and pull a trigger first, the trained veteran professional agents or folks who have never been in any kind of battle or firefight before but believe God wants them to start shooting? My bet would be, and it's particularly based on what the three journalists all say, and they were there, they saw it, and they don't have a dog in the fight, as we say in Texas. The first shots were fired by the Branch Davidians. Now, whether the three helicopters that were part of the operation fired down into the compound, as the Branch Davidians claim, it ought to be easy to prove one way or another. Now, I've gotten the testimony of the National Guard pilots who were flying these helicopters. They weren't members of ATF. They are unanimous. There were no mounted guns in those helicopters. ATF agents, there were six spread out among the three copters, did not have so-called long guns. They only had handguns. And the helicopters were hit by fire from the Branch Davidian compound while they were still about 200 yards away. According to the pilots, not ATF, but the, the National Guard pilots, there was no firing from the helicopters. Yet the surviving Branch Davidians are adamant that there were all these bullet holes in their roof coming down from the barrage from the helicopters. It should have been easy to prove. Just when the fight was over, look at the roof. And some of the roof was actually not destroyed in the fire. But a few days after the final fire, the FBI simply bulldozed everything else that was standing or left of Mount Carmel, mm. saying it was a safety issue. I don't think it was a cover-up. I think it was absolutely horrible judgment. And, of course, it leaves open forevermore, apparently, the conspiracy theories that the FBI was just trying to cover up all the stupid things it did. That so reminds me of the Jonestown crime scene, what happened afterwards. Yep. Not preserved See, at that's all. the problem. When things happen, if there's a firefight, if there's some awful tragedy, and there's two sides involved, there always will be conflicting reports of who started it, who did what. That's human nature. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me it should be the obligation of the forces representing the governments, but in that way, in a sense, representing the people. In Jonestown, it was the people of Guyana. Here in Waco, it was the citizens of America. Preserving evidence ought to be the first responsibility afterward. Mm -hmm. When it isn't, and usually that's because people are either incompetent at the tasks they've been assigned or else they simply make a fatal, terrible error in judgment, which human beings do. But it gives the opportunity to those who want to claim conspiracy. And mm -hmm. that's what's happened over the 30 years since Waco. Yep, absolutely. Um, now, I, I finished... Uh, the Road to Jonestown, I finished Waco. I'm about 100 pages into Manson. Uh, reading these books one after another, I have to say there are some striking coincidences between them. 
Off the top of my yes. head, we have either absent or distant father figures in their, in their childhoods. Uh, they use sex as a method of control over both male and female followers. They have a distinct claim of divinity, either that they're Christ or, or God. Uh, so satellite recruitment efforts in California especially, uh, and the list goes on. But I'm sure you had plenty of time to think about this as well, but what, is, is there anything, I'm, any other similarities I'm missing? <laughs> because that, those popped out at me. <laughs> well, when you, when you put together the cumulative years of research I put into those three books, Manson, The Road to Jonestown, and Waco, Obviously, I'm going to think a lot about what do Charlie Manson, Jim Jones, and David Koresh have in common. And you're right about everything you said. Absent father figures, sex to control some of their followers. And certainly they found fertile recruitment grounds in California, among other places. I see two other things. All three of them are demagogues or were demagogues. And the first obvious sign of any demagogue, man or woman, anywhere in the world, California, Texas, pick it, is that he or she will claim there is some great evil that is happening and I am the only one who can stop it. Mm. I am the only one who can fix it. And when we hear someone say those words, that ought to be a red flag waving. Then comes the second thing all demagogues do. Manson did it, Jones did it, David Koresh did it. You have to try to isolate your followers so they have no one to listen to but you. You want to get them away from their families. You want to prevent them from seeing any outside media. You don't want them talking to anybody who might dispute what you are saying. These are two obvious signs of a dangerous demagogue. And all three of these men fit the mold. Mm -hmm. There was one important difference, though, if I can add that. Mm -hmm. The first is that Charlie Manson was an ex-pimp. He was a con. He was a hustler. Mm -hmm. At his peak, he could only control about two dozen drug-addled kids. At his command, they committed a couple horrific murders that caught the attention of the world. And Charlie, being a, a smart PR guy, knew how to keep that attention afterward. But in and of himself, Charlie Manson should have been a non-entity. Jim Jones actually as leader of People's, Attempt, People's Temple, accomplished some great things in terms of civil rights yeah. uh, in the Midwest and even out in California for a while until overcome by drugs and hubris, he started imagining himself to be something beyond human. Mm -hmm. And he led too many well-meaning people directly to their deaths, and there's no forgiving that. David Koresh, and particularly his followers, whatever we might think about their beliefs, whether we think they're wrong, whether we think they're crazy, truly believed that they were all doing the will of God. As one of them said to me, if you believe in God, and you believe God has told you to do something, wouldn't you do it? So while we certainly can 
say their interpretations were terrible, were wrong, led to all this unnecessary death and violence. At least they were sincere about it. They were doing what they thought God wanted them to do. Just as many of us, when we go to church on Sundays, believe, you know, when the sermon is preached, that we're hearing the word of God. They just took it to an extreme. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up about uh, Jim Jones, because I think that is why that story hit me so hard when I interviewed uh, Tracy the first time and, and, and it went on from there. It's just like, I could totally see myself getting mixed up in something like that because I believe in that stuff too. Like I want racial equality and I want like people to be treated equally. And I, I couldn't see myself getting caught up with Charles Manson or David Koresh, frankly, but, but people's temple, I was like, okay, I, 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 that's why I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a tragedy. There's so many well-meaning people that got caught up, like hundreds and thousands of people got caught up in this because they believed in something, you know, positive. At least it was in their minds. I don't think they wanted to join a death cult or, or whatever. Like, I think they, they wanted to join something to improve the world. And I don't know, I, I just broke down crying the first time I, I wrote that story. It just, it hit me so hard. But, yeah. It was, it, was, it was hard to interview the survivors of People's Temple. Well-meaning people who didn't join People's Temple to get something or any recognition, but to try to make a positive difference in the world. It's, it, you have to respect beliefs, but there comes a point for some belief where it crosses a line. Now, the Branch Davidian survivors, to this day, every one of them, believes that everything that happened was a violation of their right to religious belief, that, that the whole thing was motivated by ATF, FBI, the American government, not wanting them to worship as they pleased. But here's something that we always need to keep in mind when we think about Waco, and I particularly recommend it to the conspiracy theorists who say the government was out to kill innocent people and those who listen to those conspiracy theorists. There were three groups involved in what happened at Mount Carmel. The ATF the FBI, and the Branch Davidians. For both the ATF and the FBI, the best possible outcome would have been that no one was hurt, no one was even scratched, that each agency in its turn wanted to have this great bloodless triumph taking these lawbreakers, and they were lawbreakers with illegal guns, which gets overlooked a lot, and bringing them to justice. The only group among the three that had death as a necessary part of its agenda was the Branch Davidians. Mm. Yeah. On a lighter note, have you been summoned to the North Pole to record any more tales of either Santa or Mrs. Claus lately? <laughs> well, you know, um, I write fiction and nonfiction, but even my fiction is based on history. Yeah. And I don't always write about cults and, and killers. You know, I've written a book about Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, who didn't kill anybody. Uh, it's true, I've written a few books about Santa Claus because I wanted to follow the real history of all the Christmas traditions. I didn't know them. I thought it would be fun to find out what they were. Sometimes you research things and you get a smile on your face, and other times it's harder. 
But history only matters if we study it and learn from it. So much is cyclical. We're, we're seeing things now in America. Two years after Waco, Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City, claiming it was in retaliation for Waco and that you have to give the federal government back what they're giving to the rest of us. In my book, we have a picture of McVeigh outside Mount Carmel, sitting on the hood of his truck selling anti-government bumper stickers. Mm-hmm. When we see uh, the attack on the U.S. Capitol, January 6, 2021, if you look at the website, some of the organizational leaders who were very much involved in that, they claim very proudly that Waco taught them that they needed to take up arms and be ready to fight the government with any means necessary. And this is all based on the assumption that the government must have had some deep, dark plot in Waco in 1993 to murder innocent, gun-owning Christian citizens. If you want to say that the FBI and ATF made egregious errors that resulted in unnecessary death, and that is a terrible thing, they don't speak lightly of it or write lightly about it. That's fair. But if you use a tragedy not as something we should learn from, but rather as an excuse to go out and create more tragedy, that's absolutely wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are you working on any other uh, novels next? Uh, I would imagine that it's kind of a relief to write about Santa Claus after <laughs> writing about some of the thing, other things you write. You write on a wide variety of topics, as you as you pointed out. But you do you write about some pretty you know uh, gruesome things, and I'm sure it's nice uh, to have that outlet of, of fiction to to come back to. And uh, how do you, how do you construct uh, scenes and dialogue? Because with obviously nonfiction, it's all just kind of there. But like, how do you go about switching in your mind when you're writing? I guess. Well, you know, all forms of writing are storytelling. Mm. And when I say storytelling, I'm not necessarily talking about making everything up. In all my nonfiction work, I'm very careful to have lengthy chapter notes so that readers don't have to just take my word for anything. They can see exactly where I got all the information that's in the book. What I look for is some historical act iconic individual that did things that carried an effect far beyond their own lives, that affect us continually up to this day. Then I try to pick a subject, whether it's David Koresh, whether it's Edison and Ford taking summer trips in cars and turning us into a car culture, whether it's where Santa Claus got that name and why he always wears a red robe with white trim. And I want to learn about these things, things that I don't know. I never would want to write a book where I thought I knew everything to begin with, because when you do that, you're only going to cherry pick the facts that you find to fit what you already thought. So I like to get the excitement of discovery. And sometimes it's discovery that makes you smile. 
reason Santa wears a red clothes with white trim is that the original Nicholas was uh, a bishop in the early Christian church. And for formal occasions, the bishops would wear red robes with white trim. <laughs> it goes all the way back there, mm. a couple hundred years after the birth of Christ. Mm. And other times, when you find that the leaders, not the actual POAs, plain old agents, of the FBI and ATF, were led into horrific events that resulted in deaths by some agents and deaths by Branch Davidians that didn't have to happen because their superiors made god-awful decisions, it's not very cheerful. But facts matter. History matters. And we can learn from history, not just the things to celebrate, and there's so much American history to celebrate, and we should be proud of it. But there are also places where we need to do better. And to accomplish that, we have to understand how we made the mistakes in the first place so we can avoid them from now on. We don't do a very good job of that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again for taking all this time and being such a great sport this evening. I really appreciate it. Um, my final question I always ask is, what music have you been listening to lately? What, what I've been listening to lately? Uh, music. What music have you been listening oh. to? Well, uh, my wife for Christmas got me a box set of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review concerts. Wow. From, from back in the mid-70s. I love Bob Dylan. Yeah, well, you know, the reason these are so wonderful, you got Dylan at, a, at an important point in his career, and you've got guest stars like Joni Mitchell, nice. you know, and Richie Havens, Kinky Friedman, it's just hearing him in a whole new way, and it's a dozen separate concerts. So you get to hear how the songs evolve over the course of the tour, and it's a lot of fun to listen to in the car. Well, that's incredible. I'm going to have to get that. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, I recommend it to you. You'd love it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I love that documentary, too, No Direction Home, uh, the Scorsese documentary. It's so good. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you again. Uh, please come back sometime. I have, I'll, I'll read some more of your books, I promise. I, <laughs> I feel so bad for not getting through all of them. But <laughs> no, this is a real pleasure. Thank you so much for caring. Thank you so much for reading books carefully and asking good questions. Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, well, uh, have a great rest of your night, and I'll hope to talk to you soon. I hope to see you again. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.